Welcome to Sound the Foghorn Fansided's official San Francisco Giants podcast. I am your host, Mark DeLuke, coming to you today on this fifth episode of our rejuvenated podcast. If you aren't already a subscriber on Apple or Google Podcasts, make sure to square that away right now. Comment your thoughts, review five stars only, and if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, make sure to include a question, and I will make sure to answer it on a future episode. But today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Sarah Sanchez. You may know her from her previous work at Baseball Prospectus, or right now as a writer for Bleed, Cubby Blue, SB Nation's official Chicago Cub site. She also co-hosts their official Cub-centric podcast, Cuppa Cubby Blue. If you aren't already, make sure to give her a follow on Twitter at BCB underscore S-A-R-A. Sarah, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, you know, I've kind of been up in the air about how to handle this week's episode for a while because it's election week. And frankly, I just couldn't bring myself to do a usual just talk Giants offseason stories podcast. It just... I knew it wasn't going to be in me and that. And then I saw your piece that's up on Medium for anyone interested. I, I recommend giving it a read. And it's on voting. And I thought you put into words a lot of things many of us have been kind of feeling and thinking about in various ways. But before we get into that, how are you doing right now? <laughs> uh, I need an eight. Uh, I need a night to sleep for eight hours. <laughs> And I need to stop hitting refresh on Twitter, just like everybody else. I'm okay. I I just think that it has been a really anxious um, few years. And the last month or so has just like amped that up too. I think I tweeted something like my anxiety is a 56 on a scale of one to 10 the other day. And it's no longer a 56. It's down to like a 16 or 17, but that's still Mm -hmm. remarkably high (laughs) for like... The baseline of an entire week or month or four years. Yeah, and there's something too that's been so tumultuous, like about everything, you know, both this year, but even going back before that. But there is something about it feeling like it could be coming to a certain end or where we could be dealing with a new thing where, you know, you kind of start moving from right when, you know, Trump first gets elected or, you know, whatever things happen in the Senate or Supreme Court, where the fact is you kind of have to, well, this is the reality we're going to be living in. This is the paradigm. How do I sort of survive and potentially push back or whatever in this world where as sort of we've gotten closer to election, then it's starting to think about, well, now you start having hope, right? You start thinking about what are the things that could possibly come out of this for the better. And that almost kind of amplifies the anxiety because you now have something almost that feels more tangible. Totally. I mean, Monday night was by far the most anxious for me just because there was nothing to do. Like all the calls had been made, all the texts had been sent. Like I had actually already voted um, I think a week or two before it was just kind of like the waiting moment, right? I saw a couple of people compare it to the scene in Lord of the Rings right before the Battle of Helm's Deep, where it's like, and so it begins. That's how I felt for like 24 yeah, it, hours. It, it's very, um, for the sports analogy, it's like very like day or like morning of the draft. Right. Where it's just like, you know, every team has had their prospects ranked for like a month now. Everyone, you know, they know what they're going to do. It's just you got to wait and see what happens and how things shake out. And so, you know, talking about the election, your piece really focused on that lead up to it. And, you know, you talked about how voting 
you know, has something you've done pretty consistently for a long time, but it did feel different for you. So could you sort of explain how did voting feel differently for you this year? Well, a couple of things. I and and to be transparent, in addition to writing about baseball, I taught government and debate and civics for seven years. So in two different states, I'm certified by two different states to like teach our young people all about democracy and all that jazz. I've talked to tons of 16, 17 and 18 year olds about how to register to vote, what that means, um, run mock elections, the whole bit. And I just this year for the first time, I was incredibly nervous about my vote being counted. I was I had applied for a mail in ballot. I did it early in the summer after I saw what happened with the Wisconsin primary. And then the summer was just an all out and constant assault on mail-in ballots. The post office started getting messed around with. There were questions about, oh, well, more mail-in ballots get thrown out than anything else because people mess them up. Like, what if you use the wrong color ink? Or what if your signature doesn't match exactly? And all this stuff. And I was just, the amount of anxiety that I think all of us have right now just living in the pandemic, trying to get through our day-to-day lives without getting sick is already amped up to like an 11. And to, to add on top of that, the idea that your ballot might not count if you grab the wrong pen or if your mm-hmm. hands are shaking while you sign your own name was just, it, it was, I, I can barely come up with a word. It was just like, I'm, I, my palms are getting sweaty talking about it again. <laughs> yeah. And also I think the tone that kind of sat over it right is that it would not be counted but also like because of nefarious actors right because there were people who were going to be looking for mistakes in ballots because there are people and you know again this is factual the president has already been touting misinformation about you know voter fraud stuff that's just not there and it's really the only intention of it is to not count perfectly legal perfectly valid ballots to change the outcome of the election that for him, but also potentially for Senate races and House seats and things down the ballot as well. Totally. And I I have thought that voting should be easier for a long time now. I think it is atrocious that we live in a country that we call a democracy and there are always three and four hour long lines yep. in our biggest cities while people line up to vote on election day. Election day is not a holiday. So if you need to wait in line for four hours to vote, that is a huge deal if you're just trying to like work and get your life together and like do your thing, it makes it a lot harder for people to participate in the franchise and to be part of the decision-making structure of the Republic. That's backwards. We should make it easy for people to participate, not hard. But this year on top of all of that infrastructure, right? Like that, that's always existed. That's something that's been consistent for a while. They added this element of like they wanted to invalidate as many of those ballots as possible. And they were just transparent mm-hmm. about it. They were like, we're going to mess up the post office so that your ballot might not get there in time. We're going to sue all these states where the votes matter most to make sure that they only count ballots that come in by a certain specific time. And they wanted to make that time as small as possible. I mean, I... I talked about this in the medium piece that you referenced, but I practiced my own signature four times and I don't think I've ever thought about my signature prior to this year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, on the back end of decades of 
voter dis well centuries really a voter disenfranchisement right like florida is sort of i think going to be the state that gets a lot of folk well i think georgia actually might be sort of becoming the dominant narrative but at least early on right it was florida because trump surprisingly you know outperformed expectations probably largely and larger in florida than potentially anywhere else and it ends up you know, winning that state, but I think it's going to be two or three points at this point. But also one of the things about Florida is that the Supreme Court ruled, and again, I'm talking about like factual things. You can just Google this. The Supreme Court ruled that a voter disenfranchisement law, I believe it was voted in that said, you know, federal or felony convicts couldn't register to vote, that Florida state basically said, well, we're not going to do it. This, it, even though, um, the vote said that these people should be allowed to register to vote and vote without having to pay after they've served their time. That And the Supreme Court says you have to enforce this. The Republican Party, which is in control of the state government, refused. And there was no enforcement. There was nothing on the back end to stop it, right? Like the thing about, I think, this election, but really Trump's candidacy and really like Trump's rhetoric, right, is it is sort of a culmination and it is a – uh, overt inaction of a lot of things that have been happening in courts and through legislatures for years, most often prominently from the Republican Party. Oh, for sure. I, you know, I don't want to get partisan on your podcast or anything. Anybody who follows my Twitter account can tell that I vote mostly Democrat and pretty progressive. But the, let's be really clear. <laughs> there is one party that thinks they have a structural strategic advantage if fewer people vote and they're transparent about it. They say it out loud mm -hmm. all the time. It's not, there's one party that wants to make it easier for you to vote and they want more people to vote. And there's another party that does not want people to vote. So no. I, <laughs> the voter suppression stuff only goes one way. I mean, there are instances where the Democratic Party has done things that I wish they wouldn't do in terms of voter suppression, specifically in cities like Chicago and New York around primary elections. Like they mm -hmm. make it really difficult for people to primary established candidates. And that's all blue machine stuff that should mm -hmm. also go away in my opinion, but internal elections, there is one party that's really trying to keep people from voting and it's the GOP. <laughs> yeah, well, and when we think about the institutional problems too, like one of my friends was you know sort of talking to me and said like why is it that it's always a early you know usually at least in these elections often it's big republican leads that get eaten into by generally urban areas right that are predominantly minority in the case of philadelphia right like huge and atlanta black voters that make up huge portions of the electorate why is it that these are the votes that are always being counted last well because these are often the places that have the fewer precincts and voting sites per capita they have the most votes to count and probably the fewest proportional employees to do them like all of this stuff like with trump coming in while he still has the lead and saying that they're going to make up ballots to change the result that's a direct you know reaction to again like you were talking about a, a flaw that's already in the system that does need to be changed to improve at least you know to improve the democracy right to help more people be able to vote and also it be more fairly because the reality is like there's a reason that certain districts are able to report first part of it is economic right because it's not a national holiday some communities are more likely to have people who have to work but an another big part of it is just staffing 
Well, staff, yeah, staffing, and you mentioned the ratio of the number of votes, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you have 900 votes to count in your entire yes. precinct, that's a lot easier than counting 1.5 million votes in your precinct, right? Like, it's just, it's one of those things where proportionality matters. I also want to go back to something you said there that I think is important, and I just want people to be really clear about this. Like, this this thing where they're counting votes late because they had such a glut of mail-in ballots that they couldn't count before in certain states is specifically because Republicans sued to make sure that those votes wouldn't be counted until the day of the election. They prevented those states from counting them earlier, even though they knew there would be a lot of them. So they created this chaotic system specifically because they knew they'd be able to use it to sow doubt later. And frankly, I we shouldn't have leaders who want to sow doubt in our system of government. That's in, that's insanity. Your your system needs people who believe it's legitimate and fair. And I think it's a travesty that we currently have a situation where one side benefits from sowing all that doubt, making it harder to vote, making people anxious about their vote. I mean, I talked a little bit about how nervous I was. I ended up not mailing my ballot in. I ended up taking it to a drop box here in Chicago, because I didn't trust the mail, thanks, GOP. And I I was like grabbing my ballot. I was white knuckling it. I was just like terrified it was going to get blown away or something. Something was going to happen to intervene. It's just been, I look forward to not being anxious all the time for mm-hmm. a few years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think there's, you know, and again, this isn't to say that neither of us have like critiques of the Democratic Party or Democratic totally. Party. Like you mentioned like the blue machine and I think there are also like a lot of legitimate criticisms that the GOP will often lodge in bad faith, right? Like they are not legitimate. But there's a reason we were seeing from exit polling data that, you know, all groups except it looks like white men voted more for Donald or at least were more favorable for ratios at least to Donald Trump than in the twenty sixteen election. And there's a lot of like, if you look at the numbers, whether it be on the economic side, we look at the COVID response to the pandemic and all these things, you know, you can look at it and say, well, how is this happening? And I think that's a perfect example and potential indictment of, you know, how the Democratic Party has perhaps failed to monopolize or really capitalize on the reality that a lot of modern a lot of neoliberal policies, whether it be neoconservative policies or far right policies that Trump has pushed, but even a lot of neoliberal policies have struggled to, you know, really change the lives for a lot of people. And that's across demographic groups. And I wonder sort of, you know, how, you know, we're going to digest this. I realize I'm getting far off on a tangent far from what we're talking about, but it's just, and that's where too, it was this election, what, I am somewhat surprised to see it, you know, turnout was clearly super high, right? Both Trump and Biden are getting more votes than any other candidate has before. Just And part of that, I think, is a, a symptom of a lot of states just went to mail-in, so you probably increased turnout a good amount through there. But, you know, there were some people who would be like, well, I'm not going to vote because for 30 years, the president really hasn't changed my life. Like, it really hasn't, like, they feel like they've, you know, things haven't changed much. And it's like for a lot of them, it's not necessarily totally wrong, right? Like that's also, a, a, to me, like a sign of the failure of those who've been in government before, right? Like, again, 
when I think talking about Trump, you know, he was this outsider and part of that, or again, quote unquote outsider, he advertised himself, marketed himself as an outsider. And that part of that was because of, he was able to take advantage of people saw, felt like people who've been governing, it hasn't made the substantive progress that it, it frankly needed to. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with a lot of that. I think that it's fundamentally true that a lot of people look at both parties and think, what have these people done for me lately? I do think it's worth noting that the Democrats, I, I, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty far to the left of where most of the Democratic Party is. I think that they've made some pretty terrible mistakes around how they deal with labor issues. Um, they've sort of lost the working class voter. And I think that the Democrats who have managed to stay authentic on that have done a lot better than the ones who have not. I'm thinking about like Sherrod Brown in Ohio, for example. I actually also think that's part of Bernie's appeal, although that's a whole thing for another day. Yes. The the thing that's really interesting here, though, is not so much whether you like think Joe Biden is going to like save the world, because I, I most certainly do not. I, I have no delusions about Joe Biden. He's about like my 10th pick for a nominee in the primaries. I, I know that he's what he's done historically. I don't think he'll get a lot done with a GOP Senate. I just think that having Joe Biden in the White House at this point in time means I don't have to constantly have my phone alerts on wondering if the president just like blew up the NATO alliance or like is about to start a thing with North Korea. Yeah. That, that stasis of I don't have to think about the president every day is worth something to me. I think that citizens are going to have a lot of work to do to move either party to where they want it to be. And I'm a little bit terrified to, as to how dug in people are on both sides of this right now, because I don't think that it's easy to move um, consensus generally, but I think it's incredibly difficult when approximately 50% of people think they're right <laughs> mm -hmm. on very different platforms, right? Um, that has to do with media ecosystems and a bunch of other mm -hmm. stuff that probably we should, we should save for another day. But I, the overall state that we sort of find ourselves in where politics is so fraught, like any conversation about politics is so fraught. I, I actually applaud you for doing this on your podcast. We did not do this on our podcast this week, mainly because it's one of those things that the, the backlash that you get from the other side can just be, it's intense. It's not, it's not Definitely. fun. Nobody's enjoying these fights. Yeah. And, and I do think if you are listening and have a big problem with this, I'm curious why you still are. You can always just tune in next week. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I do think that was sort of something I went into. And like, do I skip this episode? Like, do I, I was considering even looking into, there's some academics who I really like, who I was considering trying to bring on. Um, and then, but I thought your piece kind of tapped into just to get something. I think a lot of people were going through and just sort of this anxiety uh, around, you know, them feeling very strongly that they needed to vote and them also feeling very worried that as much as they needed to vote, they weren't confident that they would be able to, whether that right. be for health concerns, whether that be for, you know, nefarious actors on, you know, the, uh, you know, election preventing them from voting or not counting their ballot or 
discrediting it. So um, I, I guess kind of switching to it, I'm curious when you, know, you talk about that anxiety and you talk about for you, it's really spanned the Trump years, but did you feel this election played a role in how you were interacting with the major league season to kind of switch it to baseball a bit? I don't know that the election changed how I interacted with baseball with one exception, like one very specific exception, which is on election day itself to keep myself from going crazy. I had myself very busy from like the moment I woke up to about eight o'clock at night to make sure that I wasn't just obsessing about early returns. And I would like to shout out Rob Manfred for an absolutely foolish decision <laughs> that helped me with this, um, that I volunteered to write the gold gloves piece for BCB specifically so I could keep myself busy until that those announcements were over. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that was one way that it impacted baseball a little bit. I the, the other way that it impacts baseball, I guess, particularly for Cubs fans, is in terms of our team ownership. And that's one of those things that, look, I have had the pleasure of chatting with Tom Ricketts on a time or two. He's a really nice guy. He's not one of the more political Ricketts, and he's kind of the guy that runs the day-to-day -day for the Cubs, but it's hard to escape the fact that his brothers who are like co-owners, one of them is the governor of Nebraska. One of them is like running Trump's re-election campaign, something or other. Right. And even though their sibling, Laura, who is also an owner of the team, does a ton of great work in democratic politics in and around Chicago, it's just really hard to square the circle of like my favorite thing the Chicago Cubs being owned by people that I actually think are doing harm. <laughs> yeah. And it was something that I felt like I was seeing in one section of the news cycle, if you will, for a while, but felt like an elephant in the room to a vast majority of baseball people, <laughs> you know, in that this year, I thought this election did seem to have so much built to it, right? Like ultimately that kind of, whether you want to call it, you know, strong partisanship or, or just the sort of public opinion divide, I guess, that really is probably the strongest in the U.S. right now as it's been in some recent history, that that was building for a while, right? That that, you know, kind of traces back to both the Democratic primary and you were seeing it kind of evaporating, like people starting to kind of feel this pretty strong anxiety about what was going to happen. And baseball you know, is trying to go about it the way that most sports leagues do normally, which is they try to act independent of the culture, right? They try to act as if they're separate from it, that, you know, we, we separate these things. And really it's a feedback loop, right? Like sports is not only a reflection of society. Society is not only a reflection of sports, but they do feed off each other. And do you think this season you know, where they had to deal with the COVID pandemic and while a non-political reality, a, you know, politics played a huge role in the impact it had in the United States compared to elsewhere, it played a huge role in sports that were able to return or not return. And it's played a huge role economically. Do you think, and then we had obviously the protests that led to the wildcat strike that started in WNBA and NBA and then eventually did cancel many major or postpone many major league baseball games do you think this year has impacted how baseball will view itself in relation to politics 
So a couple of things there. And I wrote a lot about this, particularly with the wildcat strike, because I thought that the Cubs were in a particularly bad situation with the decision that they apparently failed to make as a team to sit that game out with Jason Hayward, Mm, who did mm -hmm. sit out the game. Um, So people should, it's actually a piece I'm pretty proud of. If people wanted to go back and check that one out, that's a good one. Um, The, I think baseball is a particularly conservative sport and I never thought I would see the day where any part of baseball would embrace the black lives matter movement, even a little bit. So I was heartened by that. I I was actively, actually really excited that baseball did that, that they put black, black lives matter on the mound, that they had the players were given the option to wear the patches and the shirts for warm-up, even though some didn't. Uh, I watched the Cubs do a similar type of thing. They had they have done actually some pretty decent anti-racism work in their front office. Admittedly, they're like decades too late. They should have done this a long time ago, but it, it's a thing now where they host like these talks outside and bring in activists from the south and west side of chicago and they talk about ways that they're going to make their organization better and that's good that's all good it's also not enough and it's it runs the risk of corporatizing and sanitizing movements in a way that's pretty dangerous so Mm -hmm. i'm simultaneously optimistic that mlb move even a little bit at all and I'm not exactly sure where it goes from here. I think that the for some players and some teams, it clearly impacted them a lot more than others. For some people, they're still trying to figure out if they can even say the words. And I, I don't have any answers for that. I don't think that any part of sports culture has answers for that. I think it's all messy. But I... I guess I would say that baseball made more strides this year than I thought were possible. And it's still woefully short of where it should be. Yeah. And I think the other thing that it, that it sort of forced to the forefront that you saw plain to see, because more reporters were asking these questions more, you know, just the nature of public discourse was kind of forcing these things to the forefront is that, you know, you have so many different groups of people, so many different perspectives in these in sports, right, in these leagues, it's really kind of a rare industry, right, where all these public people, you know, it's not like, you know, well, in in the, to compare, right, like players on the field in comparison to MLB front offices, right, in the front office, there's pretty much a pipeline from the Ivy Leagues, right, you have these pipelines that are coming from relatively similar backgrounds in that they're, you know, people who grew up as sports fans, maybe they played sports and then pursued economics degrees or mathematics degrees, went on to graduate school, where in baseball, right, you have this wide disparate experience, whether it be coming from international free agency, even domestically, you know, whether you're going to high school, getting drafted out of high school, going to the minor leagues, getting drafted out of college, it's a top pick, a lower pick. And so you have vastly different perspectives and vastly different opinions on all of these things, whether it be on a particular issue or even where athletes should be talking about or addressing particular issues. And I thought what to me, the, I guess, biggest positive for me was it seemed like for the first time in at least a broad enough sense that baseball was giving people who wanted to use the space to articulate a message the space to do it. Now, 
again, do I think it was the majority of people? No. And do I think that there's actually a lot of people who may feel the exact opposite? Yes. But I feel like historically it has been essentially the dominant culture in Major League Baseball and really in sports is to sort of never address these things. And anyone who ever addresses or makes an opinion known or makes a statement is, you know, ostracized or told basically to stand down. And I felt like this year what it did seem like was even if people were saying things, right, even if people were expressing opinions that probably the majority of other baseball people disagreed with or weren't comfortable with, that they were allowing them the space to do that. And I think that's at least something that I'm hoping can kind of continue to build. It is, although a couple of notes of caution here that I think are in order. I There was a really great data dive uh, in baseball prospectus from Rob Arthur this summer that I highly recommend people go check out that looked at the ways implicit bias impacts mm. how minor league players advance through the system yes. and how that basically, I mean, the long and short, short of this, the takeaway is that black and brown players produce more value relative to their numbers in baseball. And what I mean by that is they're undervalued systemically in the minor league. So when they come up, they actually wind up contributing more war per their um, than they should based on the population they have. It's easier to see with a chart. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that basically means is that for the standard like white player, they advance through the system six to eight months faster than their black or brown counterparts. And and the impact to that is, you know, almost a full season of experience. And it's also a big deal in terms of who gets those roles, like who are the last people that get called up, right? Like your mm-hmm. utility guys, your extra outfielder, those types of position players are overwhelmingly white. And it's it's not, this is not to say like, everybody's sitting down in double a and they're evaluating players and they're like, well, I got to move the white guy up first. That's not what they're doing, but they are when they're evaluating players, making subtle judgments about character and ability that wind up trickling into a pretty systemic issue Mm -hmm. in terms of who actually advances to the major leagues and where they play. Yeah, and obviously the financial implications of that are huge, right, in terms of months of big league salary loss, but also not accruing service time to get to arbitration and free agency, where at least historically there's been more money. We'll see what the system looks like following this impending collective bargaining. And I I think if I remember correctly, I believe it was Rob Arthur with Baseball Perspectives did another piece, too, talking about um, bias in positional assignments. Yes. That – that black and brown players were more likely to be moved to the outfield, not to stay on the infield, that there was sort of more willingness to kind of push them to positions where the, where, you know, essentially there was kind of a more generalizable talent, right? That historically speaking, shortstops receive more money than like left fielders. Right. And, oh. and that was something that is seeing playing out financially and also a product of as, you know, I think a reasonable one to talk about like stereotypes, right? In terms of whether we're talking about like the implications, um, you know, and sort of the associations people have with these these positions, how that plays into scouting, scouting another industry that, you know, is predominantly white, you know, that how these subtle decisions that could be even starting as early 
and who knows, right, if we could really look at this data going back to even like, you know, early high school and early scouting too, how many how many things are being influenced before even these other biases are being compounded at the big league level? Well, I'm sure it is. And actually, when you get to those like early scouting periods, you have another complicating factor, which is travel ball is super expensive and time consuming. And it's just not something that is incredibly accessible to kids who don't have a ton of means and don't have parents who are able to keep up with those schedules. So um, there's, there's like a double whammy effect there in terms of getting some of the most talented athletes into baseball in the first place. And the system is really set up. I mean, I think of the minor leagues sometimes in the way the economics of the minor leagues have worked out, which is one of my pet peeves. You know, it's, it's almost like you have to be independently wealthy <laughs> to mm-hmm. stick it out a few years in the minor leagues on the hope that you will advance somehow, right? Because yeah. the the amount they get paid for what they do is is just nothing. Um, and it's yeah, the baseball has a lot of things it could improve. <laughs> let me just let me just put it that way. <laughs> no, definitely. And I again, it's one of those things where historically there's a lot of like reason to be cautious and concerned that that's not that's not going to change and frankly like all of that is not going to change anytime soon right like you hope that there are incremental improvements along the way and you know keep pushing but like that's also kind of the frustration i think for myself you know where you, you know as i've gotten older and as kind of you know as i've evolved as a person alongside a fan that it it does change, I think, the dynamic when you're watching a game and you realize, you know, the potential like financial implications for for people. You realize the way that societal problems permeate into sports and do cause harm. Like they do have negative implications um, in people's lives. And so I think that's something too that thinking about that baseball does really need to. Well, we hope baseball reconsiders its placement and its sort of placing itself on this pedestal of baseball and sports in general are independent of society, right? That it it is, you know, we play because we make the spirits of the country greater, blah, blah. And when in reality, that may be true in some instances, that may not be true in others, but that does ultimately not prevent problems in society from impacting the product on the field. And that's elements of economic class, that's elements of race, and even when we look at gender as well and how all these things uh, are are playing a role in what ultimately becomes baseball culture, but more specifically Major League Baseball culture. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the idea that you can separate politics and sports is just, is frankly wrong. I think that sports has always had an element of politics in it, even if that element of politics is that it's somehow a political, politically neutral zone, that Mm -hmm. political neutrality is itself one of those things that is political, right? Only certain people can be that politically neutral. I think that for better or for worse, one of the reasons baseball is sticky and one of the reasons people like it is that it's remarkably good at reflecting society where we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, the mm-hmm. stuff that we wish we wouldn't see. I mean, I'm, I I became fascinated with baseball because of statistics and numbers, but later because I, as I learned about like the history of labor relations and unions and players and the Negro leagues, I was like, 
baseball is a is a reflection yeah of this american experiment in a in a game and that is a wonderful thing and sometimes it's a heartbreaking thing <laughs> mm-hmm. no definitely and you know to finish up i appreciate you taking the time to talk about this you know during such a particularly i think stressful week or particularly a at least sleepless week for many people um but i do want to give you a shot to talk a bit of offseason free agency trades what are you most excited about this offseason i don't know that i would characterize the way i think about the offseason as excited and and let me explain why there are two reasons the first is that even in a normal offseason which this one will not be a normal offseason i'll get to that in a second um but even in a normal offseason the hot stove stuff sort of drives me crazy. What ends up happening is like some random front office person from some other team will drop to a reporter that they think some player on the Giants or Cubs should be available. And that will run a news cycle for two weeks where everybody writes a story about the based on the same terrible rumor. And so then there's like 15 stories and people think it has traction, but really it's all just based on the same bad rumor. So I find this time to be challenging because I think that a lot of what drives the sports media ecosystem tends to amplify bad rumors and bad information. And I don't like participating in that. So I I tell my readers all the time, like if you see a piece that I've written about a trade or a rumor or something, it's coming from a credible source. Like I'm not here to like do hot takes on some bad rumor from like somebody else's front office. That said, I don't think this is a normal off season for a couple of reasons. We already have had a couple of off seasons where free agents were sort of frozen out because the owners just didn't want to pay the contracts to older players that older players have become accustomed to. And that was before teams lost $3 billion because they couldn't have fans in the stand. Now, you might quibble with whether that's an accurate number or not. That's the number that different ownership groups are dropping into the public um, mind for consumption. But if Colton Wong can't be retained for $12.5 million and Brad Hand gets DFA'd and nobody picks him up on the waiver wire for over $10 million, we have a problem. There are no contracts to be had out there. So I'm not entirely sure what this offseason looks like, but I think it might be an even worse version of the stalled out machine that we've seen the last couple of years. And I think that may extend to trades as well, because a lot of players, it's just really hard to evaluate what their value is off a 60 game season where they may have struggled a lot. Right. Mm. So I just don't see a lot of movement coming, even though there are teams that need to make moves. Like the Indians would love (laughs) to figure out some way to turn Francisco Lindor into something. Right. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen. Yeah, I think, you know, on top of it, let alone the major league players who've only played 60 game seasons, the minor league players who many didn't have a season, weren't even at the alternate site. And, you know, that's obviously a huge driver of these trades as well. Yeah, you know, I hope you're wrong, but I think you're absolutely right. Like, <laughs> I do think we're, you know, in this space where, again, with the collective bargaining agreement expiring at the end of next season, I think that plays a big part in this. Obviously, had there been a pandemic shortened season, MLB owners would be crying poor regardless and really trying to play up their the debt they had to take and the loss in revenues but i think they're in a particularly like it came in a particularly difficult and bad time frankly for players from their perspective because 
it now becomes the perfect justifications for owners to really entrench themselves in a strong position, as strong a position as possible, heading into those negotiations um, that are probably going to you know can start this se- this season and potentially um, go into next season as well. Exactly. And so I just, I, I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know how, you know, like, let me use an example from the Cubs for a couple of seasons. Now people have wondered like, will the Cubs trade Chris Bryant? It doesn't look mm-hmm. like he's going to sign an extension here. What could you turn Chris Bryant into? Well, I don't really know what you could turn Chris Bryant into right now, but because he hasn't had a great season in 2020, admittedly, it was a 60 game season. He's still a former MVP, but do you think Theo's really going to do a deal for Chris Bryant that doesn't actually what he thinks a former number uh first round draft pick i guess he was number two overall mm-hmm. um is worth no he's not so you're in, you're in a standstill right and i just i feel like a lot of teams are in that same situation yeah i am curious to see how ownership i mean how ultimately teams spend and probably most teams not spend and i just think it's an interesting sort of it's it, to me it's interesting to see sort of which owners are going to say all right you know, this is an opportunity to take advantage of a, of a, you know, suppressed market and potentially grab talent. Is there a team out there, right? Like this is kind of like a, I've been saying it's kind of like a big game theory problem, right? Like the incentives for all the teams to kind of collude and keep salaries down benefits all ownership groups, right? It benefits all teams. And so, you know, there's probably that incentive there, but ultimately as more teams do that, as the market gets more and more suppressed, the incentive for one team to kind of break that one team to potentially spend for their own benefit is probably, you know, is higher, right? And I want to think there's a few teams out there that do that. I think it's probably true that there's, probably not going to be anyone out there that does but um you know i am someone i have to admit who i do enjoy the the hot stove chaos i kind of <laughs> like the I, you know the election cycle refreshing twitter not as much but i do enjoy the the, the crazy rumors that come out of certain places in part because sometimes i get a good chuckle out of them i think you're 100 percent right that from a game theory perspective some team should just step up and be like the team that's going to spend 300 million dollars and wreck everybody I just don't know who that team is that team had been the Dodgers and they just won so they don't really need to do that anymore and they got Mookie Betts so like I don't know why they would need to add to that I don't know what they would need to add at this moment in time I think that one possible uh, potential spender out there is the Mets I think that the new Mets ownership group is kind of interesting and could theoretically be disruptive in that way I just don't really see any other team doing that this offseason the White Sox had that offseason last year um the Yankees are always going to be the Yankees so maybe they'll spend some money but yeah outside of the Mets I just really don't know who that team is that's going to be like yes we are going to drop 250 million dollars on a title yeah I honestly think what we I think what will develop or at least I think sort of the I guess what I see is sort of the most likely midpoint of that is that we aren't going to see any team have like a White Sox-like offseason, but I think we will kind of see four or five teams, many, a few of which maybe we don't expect, spend like $60, $70 million, sort of where they go, you know, whether that be on a Marcus Stroman or, and, you know, sort of one other um, solid piece where they kind of, Rather than maybe going out, we're going to fill every hole in our roster, but they say there's two or three guys that we can get at the suppressed market. Um, and I think the Mets are one of those. I saw a report today that said the 
Mets, Blue Jays, Giants, and one other team were sort of expected to be the most aggressive. The Giants, I do think, aren't for Giants fans. I do think they're kind of in this place where you can really read into whatever you want. They did lay off 50 full-time employees that happened three weeks ago, um, and frankly, if they do spend after doing that, that should remain an indictment and asterisk on that because that clearly shows they didn't need to lay anyone off. Um, and then they immediately offered Kevin Gaussman a qualifying offer, which I don't think, <laughs> I, at least I didn't expect. Um, and so they've been a team that's kind of been, you know, they've just had their payroll decline naturally as they sort of gone through this kind of slow rebuild process. And so they could be a team positioned to spend. But yeah, totally. I mean, it's my, I feel somewhat confident that one team will surprise me. It's just, I have no, I don't think you can guess which one it is right now kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I can't really think of who it might be. Maybe the Padres. Do the Padres have money? They've got mm-hmm. a they've got an interesting window. Yeah. It, yeah, this could also be sort of one of those off seasons where we just see a lot of like big league contract swaps. You know, that's kind of something <laughs> we associate with the NBA. But like that could be kind of because really, right, we don't have as much information on prospects as we normally do. Right. So it, it this could be one where you see sort of more kind of big league need for need kind of trades or depth for depth kind of trades. But anyway, up enough of your time, Sarah. Thank you um, for joining us uh, on this episode to talk about something, you know. I think a bit, you know, off the beaten path of your <laughs> of your Cubs beat, but I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. That is Sarah Sanchez. You can follow her on Twitter. Actually, wait, well, I let you give the pitch. Where can people follow you? Where can people find your work? <laughs> uh, I write at bleedcubbyblue.com, and you can find all of my hot takes about politics and sports at at bcb underscore Sarah, no H, just S A R A. Uh, and our podcast is Cuppa Cubby Blue, which is at Cuppa Cubby Blue. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sarah. All of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of Sound the Foghorn. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>